Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. Hello, I'm back with the Pre-Hospital Podcast after a short COVID-induced delay, for which I can only apologise. But here we are, starting Season 2, and we've got a lot of really interesting episodes with some great people lined up for you um, in this next season. The first episode is with Justin Thomas, who's a Chief Paramedic Officer and PhD student currently based in Saudi Arabia. But just before we get into that, I want to just give you a couple of pre-med updates, if that's alright. The first being that we've just published our new Airway card, and that's now available on our online shop, which you can find at www.prem-ed.com. And if you look now, we've got a January sale on that's lasting till the end of the month, and that is three for two on all items in the shop, so please do go check that out. The second update is that we've unfortunately had to cancel all of our face-to-face events um, due to the COVID pandemic and the national lockdown restrictions. However, to make up for that, we've arranged some online teaching sessions, the first of which we'll be advertising very soon. So please do keep an eye out on our social media and our website for updates about that. While we're on the subject of COVID, I think it would be remiss of me not to make a comment in recognition of the hard work that everyone is putting in in the National Health Service in the UK and internationally in dealing with this pandemic. I know how busy people are and I know the stress people are under and I just want to express some solidarity with colleagues, both in the ambulance service but also in primary care, in ED, in the wards and ITU. These are crazy times and the work you guys are doing is nothing short of amazing, so thank you for that. But looking forward, a bit more optimistically, here we are in 2021, the year of the vaccine, and hopefully things are going to start getting better from here. So with that in mind, let's get into the episode. Um, I really hope you guys enjoy this. Um, please do let us know what you think and get, send us your comments and your feedback. Um, obviously, we're available on Twitter or on Facebook, or you can email us at hey.premed at gmail.com. Right, let's get into it. Okay, welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. We're on the season two now, and for episode one, I'm joined by Justin Thomas. Thanks for joining me, mate. Hazard, thanks for having me. Thank you again, yeah. So we, so we started talking on Twitter, didn't we? And um, yeah, I thought it'd be interesting to have a bit of discussion on the podcast and discuss some more international differences following my episode last season um, with Jace Mullen. Um, so for the listeners who may not know you, do you mind just giving a bit of an introduction about yourself, um, your kind of background and, and where you've worked and where you work currently? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a South African and South African trained paramedic. Um, I did a bachelor's in emergency medical care in South Africa. I finished that in 2013 and then I began working in a private 
um, what I would describe rural EMS service um, within one of the more rural provinces um, where I sort of worked on the full spectrum of like emergency medical services that you can. So we did like road ops, we did um, retrieval medicine on both ICU vehicles, HEMS, fixed wing. Um, I've worked on ambulances and primary response vehicles uh, and then did a little bit of management and um, clinical work at the same time there. So I worked there for about a year and a half and then I moved into the public sector where I worked on a government, what I would also describe as a rural um, EMS service. Um, but there I was just clinical. So I was the clinical ops ALS for that um, base or region. Yeah. Um, and I had two different bases that I responded to. Um, in 2016, I then moved through to Saudi Arabia, where I began working in airport healthcare. I started as an EMS duty supervisor, where we were just supervising the shift, basically, and providing clinical support for um, the ground ambulances. Um, and I've been working here ever since. 2019, I was promoted into my current position, which is as the chief paramedic officer for the service. Um, so, yeah. In 2016, I then also started doing my master's. I did a dual master's, one in international public health and the second one in health management um, at the University of New South Wales in Australia. I graduated with those in 2018 and then in um, October of 2020, I began with my DPhil or PhD in evidence-based healthcare. Nice, thanks for that. So quite a varied career by the sounds of it. <laughs> um, yeah, so it'd be interesting to discuss some of those things. There's a, there's a couple of things immediately I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to pick up on. Um, cool. And the first is what your definition of rural, because so, so in the UK, um, I guess, so, so the area I work in, some people would consider a little bit rural. We're, we're outside London on the coast and okay. Um, for us, that means transport times of kind of 30 minutes um, to, an, to a local hospital and probably an hour to an hour and a half to a major trauma centre. So that's rural in England, but I appreciate yeah. your experience might be in a slightly bigger geographical area. So what, what's rural to you? So rural to me, I was, uh, I ended up being the only person with my qualification for the province. So my coverage zone was quite massive in terms of that. Um, uh, and then uh, it wasn't a major like urban hub, it's a university town. So it was very small. Um, uh, you could literally run around the whole town. Kind of okay. <laughs> so, yeah, had one um, provincial hospital that I would sort of put at a maybe a level two facility. Fine. And then a private hospital with sort of like a step-down facility in it. Um, but most of the patients, like if there was any critical care patients or anything like that, you'd have to transport them to the next biggest town, which was about 100 kilometers away. So, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So a little bit bigger. And, and what's it like being in a system where you're the only person with your level of qualification? So, so how does that work? Do you provide a lot of primary responses or do you provide a kind of backup to um, more more um, like crews with lower qualifications how does that work uh, logistically so in the South African setting um, uh, how the system is sort of developed is that you have uh, your ambulance which would have um, more commonly basic life support to intermediate life support practitioners on it yeah. and then you have a primary response vehicle that will have your advanced life support practitioners on it um, so the PRV would really respond to calls where they are needed, but you get formally dispatched to that call. So you go there, you do the, the work of an advanced life support paramedic, um, those skills and all of that kind of stuff, if that makes sense. But you also do provide like clinical um, expertise or knowledge yeah. to your um, more junior staff. So if they have questions or they, you know, need assistance with their patients or whatever, 
then they can call you for backup and then you back them up in terms of that. But there are some calls that would be inherently ALS and then you fine. would be dispatched primarily to that anyways. Yeah, okay, fine. Thank you. Um, so let's let's touch on education, if that's all right. So yeah. in the UK, um, I don't know how much you know about the UK system. So so generally, I mean, I've discussed it previously, but, but in summary, um, most paramedics in the UK now um, are uh, BSc trained, so three-year Bachelor of Science um, to achieve a paramedic science degree. Um, and then you register with the Healthcare Professions Council, who's our national governing body, um, and then you can practice the paramedic. And, and most paramedics work for a public sector, uh, but there is private sector work as well. Um, from that, what, with some experience, you can go on to specialise. And so I've specialised in critical care, but there are options to specialise in uh, urgent and emergency care as well um, in the ambulance service. And then there's increasingly roles outside of the ambulance service, um, kind of provision of healthcare. So um, GP surgeries, uh, general practitioner surgeries in hospital, um, in frailty teams, in nursing homes, the, the role is kind of expanding. Um, so th that's the UK. How, how does it work um, firstly in South Africa in terms of um, your training and, and what levels of roles you have and, and what training do you have to become a paramedic? Uh, sure. So in South Africa, there's a lot of different qualifications, but I'm going to focus on the uh, three that are the new system, if that makes sense, because mm -hmm. that will be what most people are going to go into going forward. So in terms of that, how South Africa has organized it, you have entry-level workers, mid-level workers, and then your top-level workers um, or qualifications. So at an entry level, you do a higher certificate in emergency care, um, which on the South African qualification framework would be an NQF level five, which is just above like matric or high school. Um, and that's 420 credits. The curriculum is Basically, you do foundations of professional practice, a little bit of mental health and wellness, and then there is um, a year-long curriculum in emergency care theory, practice, and clinical practice. Uh, you also do anatomy and physiology, and then physics and chemistry. And uh, according to the Health Professions Council of South Africa, that would be the equivalent of an EMTB in the USA, or um, they say an ECA in the UK, um, an emergency care assistant in the UK, yeah. um, an emergency medical responder from uh, the Canadian system or an island of an emergency first responder with varying differences in clinical practice. But what you would normally come out with is you've come out with either a ba with between a basic and an intermediary um, life support scope of practice. So there are some medications that you have, you can do some, you can put up IVs and things like that and give fluids. Um, and there are some airway skills that you can have, but some of them are under um, supervision. The mm -hmm. next sort of step up after that is a diploma in emergency medical care, uh, which qualifies you to be a mid-level worker. That's a two-year diploma um, at an NQF level six. That is basically the same first year curriculum as the higher certificate. And then in your second year, you build a little bit more on that. Um, and they add rescue modules into that as well. So you do high angle rescue, light motor vehicle, uh, fire search and rescue. And I think it's industrial and agricultural rescue, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, that is considered intermediate to advanced. So you're not fully advanced life support, um, but you have some more medication and some more scope of practice on that one. Uh, we can get into the specifics sort of later, but that document's available if we need to. Um, and then the highest level basic or undergraduate degree that you can do is a bachelor's in emergency medical care. And that's a four year degree at NQF level eight. Um, and basically that fully qualifies you to practice the full scope of the profession. Um, which is quite broad. It's, there's about 71 medications that we have on our scope and there's quite a lot. So, yeah. Okay, fair enough. So it's, it's not it's not dissimilar from the UK then in terms of years of training and, and um, responsibilities. Um, do, do you have do you have kind of specialist paramedic roles as well? Or is it that you achieve this this kind of four year degree to become a paramedic and then 
as a paramedic you can work in different areas um or or you can can you progress clinically and academically so just to build on what i said previously all of those uh degrees will qualify you to be registered with the health professions council of south africa um under different registrations um but basically in south africa there isn't a formal like specialization program where you will become a specialist in critical care or whatever it's you're trained to work in any setting because that's kind of the need for the context so if you look at the, the south african context we're a low to middle income country we are a resource limited setting and as a result of that i mean you heard when i graduated i was the only person with my qualification in yeah, the province yeah. so your skill set needs to be general so that you can function and treat as broad a sort of scope of patients as possible um, yeah. but then what would happen is is that if you decide that you want to do say for example hems or helicopter ems then you would look for a job in that and that would be where you would work um or road ops icu or whatever the case may be um there are some you can go on to study a masters and different masters programs will be curriculated differently but it doesn't lead to a formal like specialization where you are registered as a specialist clinician in that field um you just have that extra knowledge okay yeah fair enough fine thanks for that um and so I can't remember exactly what year you said, but you moved to um, to Saudi Arabia. Yes, yeah. Um, and what, so, why? Why? <laughs> what, what kind of led <laughs> you to do that? Because um, it, it seems like quite a big move to me. Um, so what motivated you to, to make that move? Um, uh, I think because I had sort of exhausted the, I want to say, the career opportunities within the South African setting, very quickly out of school at, or out of university i chose to go into the rural side of things because i wanted that broad scope and broad experience mm. uh, i think working in rural medicine gives you that you are the only person there so you have to sort of function in that position and so as a result i quickly progressed through everything that you can do within the ems setting and i was looking for something different so that is that sort of skills migration is something that South African paramedics do quite a lot. We go abroad. Um, so South Africans are working sort of everywhere in the world at the moment. Um, for me, I got sent an email on LinkedIn where they were like, hey, so we have this job for you. Yeah. Are you interested? And I was like, hmm, okay. Look. <laughs> Fair enough. Let's do a job. Easy so as that. that. Was, yeah, that was sort of how that worked. Um, Gotcha, and I sort of, I feel like I found my knack um, and okay. like my niche in yeah, yeah, this. Yeah. I completely love what I do. I think it's really, really cool. Um, and so is, yeah, it, so is it very different? That, like, like, was it a bit of a culture shock when you got there in terms of the practice or, or did you find that it was a kind of similar provision of healthcare or was there a lot of changes you had to get your head around? Uh, there are a lot of changes that you need to get your head around when you're in Saudi Arabia. So, for example, the first thing is, is that there is international scope of practice. Scope of practice is determined by the organization that you work for and they make it up themselves, basically. <laughs> so, yeah, that was something that was interesting to get around. The other thing is, is that there's only two levels of qualifications in South Africa, or sorry, in Saudi Arabia. You have your EMT paramedics and then, or your technician paramedics, and then you have specialist paramedics. So the technician paramedics, they are the ones who have done like a two-year diploma um, and they will work on the ambulance, you know, with your normal paramedics as well or your specialists. And then the specialists have a bachelor's degree and they register with the uh, Saudi Commission for Healthcare Specialities. Um, and yeah, then they have, what's interesting with their registration is, is that the higher your qualification is, so if you have a bachelor's, you are registered as a specialist. The more you progress experientially, or if you get a master's, then you have the option to be registered as a senior specialist in whatever discipline that you're in. If you then go on to a PhD, you register as a consultant. 
Okay. So they have like a formal registration for that, which is quite cool. Um, uh, something that South Africa doesn't yet have, to my knowledge. Um, but hopefully it would be something that would be in the pipeline to develop. Yeah, so, uh, so we have something similar in the UK. The, so, so we have the HCPC, who's our governing body, and then we have um, the College of Paramedics, who kind of represent us as a profession. And the College of Paramedics have po- um, published a post-registration career framework, which kind of follows a similar thing. So from qualifying so so it's slightly different in the sense that you have to qualify as a paramedic to become registered so we do have grades such as technician and and eca as you mentioned but they're not registered um grades so so you you register as a paramedic with the hcpc and then the college of paramedics post registration career framework has kind of three stages in four pillars so the stages are specialist advanced and consultant um, mm-hmm. in clinical practice and that is kind of similar so specialist uh, is a postgraduate diploma advanced roughly is a master's and then for a consultant position it's kind of, I mean I don't think it's as black and white as that but it's kind of PhD level um, expectation cool. and that's yeah. it's, it's very similar in clinical roles managerial roles um, research and in academia like lecturing yeah. um, however the HCPC doesn't um, recognize specialist and advanced practice as a um, change to your registration um, oh, I see. Okay. yeah so so the the only thing that has changed recently is that paramedics can do non-medical prescribing and then mm-hmm. that's annota- if you're if you're a non-medical prescriber that would be annotated on your registration but otherwise okay. um, everyone is a paramedic in terms of their registration and the um, increased autonomy skill responsibility is dependent on the service that you work for okay um, so it's, it seems similar um, yes um uh, that so if you are then an eca or a technician how does that then affect your autonomy in the um uk system can you still be can you still be employed and work or if you're yeah, not so, going to be registered yeah so historically you used to have technicians and paramedics and that was a kind of national... So there's, there's I always get this number wrong, approximately 10 public ambulance trusts in the UK, and they okay. all followed the same model. So you'd join and you'd be a kind of apprentice or a trainee technician, and do some education, a month or so of education, and then spend a year with an experienced crewmate who would sign you off clinically, um, and then you'd become okay. a technician. And then to progress okay. to paramedic, it would be a similar thing. So you do your paramedic education, um, and mm-hmm. then spend time with an experienced paramedic to be signed off for that. Okay. Um, it's since developed and services develops their own roles. And so you'd get a, a, a variety of different titles for roughly the same thing. So um, emergency mm-hmm. care support worker, emergency care assistant. Um, and then okay. with a bit more clinical training, you'd have associate practitioners and associate ambulance practitioners and, and okay. these various names. And it's yeah. kind of, it's gone full circle a little bit in that they've developed a national qualification, which is mm-hmm. Associate Ambulance Practitioner. Yeah. And that's um, a level, what we would call further education. So sli- slightly higher than, um, s- sorry, slightly lower than university level education. Okay. Um, and so once you qualify as an AAP, um, it's roughly equivalent to what a technician was. Um, okay. in terms of education and mm-hmm. responsibility and scope of practice. Um, okay. And although that's national, it's not registered um, because only the paramedic title is, is the registered bit. Um, so, so in terms of, you could, you could move around previously, if you weren't a paramedic, it's difficult to move from trust to trust because the mm-hmm. qualifications are different. Whereas now yeah. with the AAP qualification, it's easier to move to other parts of the country because other trusts should recognise it. Um, yes, yeah. and they're starting to in- a lot of services are starting to integrate that into the paramedic education pathway so um, doing your year of AAP training uh, is considered by a lot of universities to, to count as the first year of a paramedic degree and so okay, you can cool. go on to complete the subsequent two years to achieve yeah. a BSc so it's all kind of being started to be formalised academically um, so yeah I think, I think it's a good model we have now yeah, I think that I think that it's helpful to have those sort of progression pathways um, in any system because, especially in the current economy and things like that, many people can't afford to sort of do full time uh, university education. 
So I think that especially for the durations that, you know, we do them, a four-year full-time degree. Um, so for people looking to transition into the profession from some other discipline, it can be virtually impossible for them to actually do that. So I like the a model where you are able to take a year off, sit focus on that, come back, recover economically or whatever from that, and then progress to the next thing. But you still have a clearly defined career pathway. Um, I think that sometimes full-time university is really only an option for people that are immediately leaving um, high school or uh, secondary school or whatever it's called. Um, yeah. Elsewhere. So I think it's, it's good. And historically, paramilitary training was not academic. Um, yes. And so there was a lot of reliance on experience um, and, and less so on kind of academic knowledge. Yeah. And then kind of rightly so, I think the paramilitary has been, been pushed to be more, the, sorry, the profession's been pushed to be more academic. Um, yeah. But the counter argument was a bit of concern that you'd essentially have a lot of inexperienced, um, university knowledgeable people in, mm. in roles that they probably couldn't manage in terms of their life experience. And so yeah. there was some concern over the lack of balance. And I think now... We have this model, like I say, where you can you can join as a full time employee and then progress academically while still being employed full time. It kind of mm. meets that balance, and so it's it, it it gives you that balance of experience and academic background. Um, and then, like you say, I think it's fairer in terms of a socio economic context, and um, it's yeah. a lot more um, accessible. accessible, exactly ac- accessible to people um, rather than this kind of you know, only opportunities for people that can afford it. So I think it's, yes. I think it's good. It's good. Something that's quite interesting is, is that the older model in the South African setting was very similar as well. So we also had more vocational training where you would do short stints of um, like training, academic training, and then you'd have to work um, a thousand hours uh, on an ambulance to qualify for the next sort of um stint of academic training um, and also in the South African setting it was recognized that actually we need to move away from this model so that we can formalize the degree formalize the um, the accreditation program and actually get those uh, qualifications and training registered with the South African qualifications framework yeah. um, so that's really the new um, model that we've got going the one that I explained in the big the beginning of the the system is for that specific purpose. Um, We also had very similar concerns around the sort of experiential learning versus theoretical um, knowledge and lots of debates about that. There's still a lot of debates about that currently. Um, uh, But I think that most people have begun to accept that the profession is becoming a profession, you know, yeah. We're moving away from being a vocational like um, career choice to a professional career choice within the healthcare industry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that has forced us to change. I think that it's also it's become increasingly important that we have these kind of things, especially as uh, global healthcare services see a lot more skills migration. You know, how does yeah. one country evaluate the the education of another country if it's not an accredited program or something like that. Yeah. So I think that it does definitely create um, a standardized framework to move forward, which I think is a very good thing. Yeah. Um, and I think we'll, we'll talk about it a bit later on in the episode, but I think there's something in terms of having this autonomy and taking mm. like professional as a profession, taking some responsibility for the delivery of pre-hospital care I think to be taken seriously in that medical community, you yes. need to have this good framework and also um, engage in academic work. So kind of research yeah. and, and publications of what you're doing and, and kind of evaluate stuff on an evidence base as a profession rather than lying, relying kind of historically on taking mm. advice and um, and instruction from the medical community. I mean, obviously yes. that's important, yeah. but um, that you know, to, to take some responsibility of that, I think is important. Um, I agree with you, and I think perhaps whilst we're busy with that, it might be interesting just to explore that at the moment. Um, but I think when you sit and you begin to look at where healthcare is a discipline 
but as an industry is moving. And what we consider as professional practice, what we consider as ethical practice, what we consider as safe practice, um, that teamwork dynamic has sort of forced us to change the roles of the teammates. And what we're beginning to sort of see, in my opinion at least, within the paramedic profession, but also I think within the nursing professions um, and different healthcare professionals, is that we're developing a practice that is fit for purpose. So if we compare that to um, uh, a medical community with doctors, what we're saying sort of is we're not inferior, we're just different. We have a different purpose yeah. in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And I think that that is, that is something that is important when considering how our qualifications and education has been designed how the system has been designed, all of those kind of things. Um, so perhaps just something to think about when you start to discuss that topic more formally later on. Yeah, and I think that, that comment about um, being just different is kind of reflected certainly in the UK in the development of roles. Um, so so to take, and, and it applies not only to paramedics, but to nursing and physiotherapy and other roles, but, yeah. but to take paramedic as an example, um, there's there's kind of specialist advanced paramedic level roles in hospital um such as what we, what we call an advanced care practitioner or an advanced critical care practitioner um and they are roles that are i think it's it's the decision is yet to be made i think um, although i might be wrong but i think they're roles that will be registered um with the general medical council rather oh, than wow, the okay. hcpc and they are recognised as practitioners in medicine, but but obviously not medical, uh, like not doctors. Practice, yeah. And they tend to work um, at kind of roughly a middle grade, kind of lower registrar grades, to my to my understanding. Yeah. And so it kind of shows that you can progress through a a paramedic or a nursing or or a physio career framework, and rather than fit in underneath the ladder of medicine, kind of fit in alongside it, um, which yeah. is kind of evidence of of what you were just. Just mentioning, I guess. Yeah, 100%. I think that as we begin to professionalize and more people are, um, uh, you know, doing research in the industry and things like that, that's exactly what we're sort of going to see is the sort of entry-level worker, mid-level worker, um, top-level worker. And I think that that's exactly what it is. When you are looking at comparing doctors, they are specific for in a hospital. And that's sort of where they do their best work, if you want to call them that. Or in a GP practice, that's where they do their best work. For us as paramedics, it's not necessary that we need many of those skills for us exactly. to do our best work. So it doesn't make sense for us to learn surgery because we're never going to do it in the pre-hospital setting. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when you're developing your, your scope of um, practice and all of that, I always believe that that should be developed according to the setting and the context that you're going to function in. Yeah. And it should be maximized for that setting so that you can do the best quality work possible within that setting. Yeah. So that I think I agree with what it is that you're saying. I think that as we begin to professionalize more and as other um, healthcare professionals begin to learn more about us and we get the sort of interdisciplinary work we're going to see that balance out a lot more um, yeah. going forward. So, Yeah, nice. Yeah. I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, me as well. <laughs> um, so, so tell me about your, so your role in Saudi Arabia now. So you work for a service and you're, would you say, the chief medical? What's yes, the title? I'm the chief paramedic officer um, for an airport emergency medical service. Fine. Um, so so that's, that's, that sounds quite niche compared to standard clinical practice so so how what's your your balance of work there is it mostly managerial stuff do you provide clinical support do you do frontline clinical shifts as well what's, what's the balance um at the moment i'm doing clinical shifts because we are uh under resourced in terms of that position but i do a lot of um uh, managerial plus clinical work so it's a balance of both of them um if i was not if I was functioning, if we had a full like staffing contingent, I wouldn't be clinical at all. I'd only be managerial. Um, but essentially, my role is to 
manage and develop the servers. Um, and that's really what we've been doing for the past five years that I've been here, um, is developing the, we'd call it the groundwork for how the rest of the service needs to happen. So um, in 2016, Saudi Arabia began to privatize all of the airports. And as a result of that, the legal framework changed um, for us. We were no longer considered a government facility. Uh, we were a private facility. So we had to begin applying for a whole host of licenses to operate as a private healthcare service. Um, and that changed everything. So we had to really develop or reframe the whole service so that it was focused on privatized healthcare. Right. Um, and that's basically been what I've been doing for the past five years. Um, going forward, my PhD topic is actually to develop the, the field of airport healthcare more substantially. Um, and that would then include things like uh, defining clinical practice within airport medicine, um, defining what are the scopes of practice, what are the um, you know, policies and procedures, how do we overcome different barriers to healthcare delivery, all of that kind of stuff. That's yeah. sort of the, the focus of that project. Um, that sounds interesting. It's, I love it because it's very, it is complex. It's very different on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Um, you get lots of different challenges when you are working at a border crossing um, because of the legal framework that affects the, the status of those people. So yeah. if you sit and you consider just the process of traveling or moving through an airport, in the, we call it land side versus air side. So in the land side area where you're within the, um, the territory of the country that you're leaving from, mm -hmm. you are still legally able to be there. You've got your visa, you're a citizen, whatever the case may be. As soon as you get processed through immigration, you lose that right to be in that country. Yeah. And that affects the way that you are able to access healthcare services within that country. And so it becomes a bit of a, a challenge when you are providing healthcare services to people in the air side or the international territory. Um, and it changes the way that we approach that. So for us, we do a lot more point of care medicine and a lot more on-scene discharge than you would in a traditional service, but mostly because the time to actually process the person back into the country to take them to a hospital just doesn't make sense. Uh -huh. And there's also a lot of um, other cost implications. You know, this person has to then rebook their tickets, their hotel stays, all of these kind of things. So we work a lot more with the the traveler with the airlines with all of these things to try and develop a bit of a bespoke um care package for that patient um, yeah, that's interesting actually so we i mean not not on that scale at all but we often have the same kind of ethical dilemmas i think in mm -hmm. in practice so and and certainly in this pandemic um that we're in because the hospitals are so full sometimes you have to consider taking patients to hospitals further away than the nearest um, yeah. for them to be able to access timely care and yeah. that the implications for patients are sometimes they they're just that like, I just I don't want to drive an hour or two hours to another hospital and yeah I guess the hi historically or, or perhaps the simplest approach is to see it as a refusal of treatment or refu refusal of care which is kind of one way of looking at it but in a more ethical way um, obviously it's not that easy and so to try and come up with a, a patient-centered plan about you know is it is it appropriate to drive that far would I do that if mm. I was him probably not etc etc and and put that kind of um, support package in place is it's certainly an interesting thing and like I say not not on that scale so I imagine the that I mean that's complicated enough for us in in the UK I think um, yeah. so to add in because there must be aspects of of flight risk you know if someone's got a kind of PE type presentation I imagine oh, yeah, flying sure. them is a high risk thing so there must yeah. be a lot of those kind of considerations that we don't think about in land practice. Well, that, well I think that that is part of the, the difference in the way that we approach care within an airport healthcare setting 
is you are very predictive in how you approach them. So if you are going to say, listen, you're fit for flight, you have basically said that nothing is going to happen to you for at least the next sort of five to six hours. Yeah. In some cases, if you're transiting for days, you know, then it's an even longer period. Um, but what we sort of find is, is that a lot of how we frame it within our setting is we talk about travel medicine um, and then emergency care. So travel medicine within our setting is primary health care at a port of entry. And these are really patients that are looking to access primary health care services, things like vital sign checks, uh, assistance with chronic medication, all of that kind of stuff. They know that they're going to get onto an aircraft and fly for the next couple of hours, and they want to check themselves before they do that. So they will access us from that standpoint, and we'll go back, we'll assist them with that, give them whatever information they need mm. um, to make the best quality decision for themselves, and then we take it from there. Um, what I wanted to say, though, just more broadly, is I think that the decision to sort of recognize this, whether it's a, a refusal of care versus an unseen discharge, is an interesting one because I think that that actually refers to how you as a clinician view the patient's participation in the process. Yeah. And how you view your role. So the approach that we take is that we are a support to the patient in terms of their ability to maximize their own health. So they will access us requesting services and we give them information and services so they can make the best quality decision for themselves. But ultimately, it's their choice whether they want to continue or they don't want to continue with their flight. Um, and I think that that is something that is, I mean, I'm not saying that other services don't do that, but I think that when you are trying to sort of classify it within the the scope of practice framework that you have in your service or whatever, um, oftentimes we will just default to the patient refused care. But because that's the only option, it's not that we yeah, have. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a, I think it's an interesting kind of dichotomy between what we're taught and, and, and the kind of education. And there's, there's such a rhetoric in UK uh, medical teaching about patient-centered care and ethical decision-making and, and all this, you know, it's, it's all... Um, it's all accurate and appropriate stuff to teach but then you go into practice and, and it's the services in, in terms of um, policies and procedures and legality is all a good decade behind and so yeah. and so you hear that even though you might not think that even though that, that might not be your approach ethically to, to patient care um, ultimately what you see on, on paperwork is a box for refusal and you know yeah. this patient's and it, it's kind of easy and I was certainly guilty of it when I was inexperienced of if someone s says they're not going to go to hospital and signs that form refusing it's kind of like a weight's lifted off your shoulders and they're no longer your problem and yes, yeah. when, when actually a lot of those people that refuse people who are in terms of discharge extremely vulnerable unsafe people so you know kind of um homeless people or yes. intoxicated yeah. um, a lot of these patients will have mental capacity and then refuse mm. care um yeah. but in doing so they're putting themselves in a very high risk position and i think like you say our our responsibility professionally is to continue and and probably work harder to put, put to put something in place in terms of supporting that person but Definitely. i think it's easy legally and um in terms of policies and procedures just to say well you know, they, they don't want care, that's their problem. Um, yeah. So there's a, there's a kind of dichotomy, I think, in, in education and practice, certainly. Definitely, and I think also just evaluating the circumstances under which a person can medically refuse care or when you can actually consider it that this person is competent to refuse their own care. Yeah. And, you know, in my opinion, or for me personally, if somebody was under the influence of any substance, I would not consider that as being mentally um, able to refuse care. But I also think that there are other challenges that we are not always uh, taught at an education level with how to manage that dynamic on the scene. So say, for example, you have a patient who becomes combative because 
they don't want to go to the hospital, but they're intoxicated and you can't accept their refusal of care because it's not legally binding or whatever. Mm. How do you then manage that conflict at the scene? I think that there's a lot of um, areas within our scope of practice that we are not, what's the, a nice way of saying it, that we're not equipped to deal with. Yeah. Um, because we haven't formally focused on studying that. Um, and I think that that is something that is, it's definitely exciting as we begin to professionalize, we can begin to sort of see these areas that people can look into and develop best practices for. But I think as we currently stand, it's, there isn't really guidelines for that. There's no research that I'm aware of for that. So, yeah, and it's it's certainly something in the UK. is It's a very classic problem in terms of so so that kind of scenario you you described is is a, a kind of a joint responsibility often between us and the police service. Yes. Um, yeah. But neither of us really. So there's certainly no powers to take someone out of their own home. Um, yeah. And and so often and you know classically these jobs will always happen at two in the morning when no one's on call and no one's around to help and yeah. and it's just such a classic situation that you've got yourself your crewmate a couple of police officers a really difficult patient inside their own home and it's just a kind of checkmate <laughs> and, yeah. and and those situations like you say are so hard to deal with and um, because it's not really the the law or policy or guidance in place to of how to manage them yeah I think experientially something, and I don't know if I should actually continue with this, but what I would <laughs> we actually can, We can do, cut out. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, from my standpoint, what I would look to in terms of that is I would look at the safety aspect of it. So is the patient safe in their current environment that we find them in? How is their behavior impacting the safety of um, the people they're around, but also how is their behavior going to impact the safety of us as clinicians and our teammates that are actually there on the scene with us. So um, uh, police services or you know local security guards or whatever the case may be. Um, and then it would become a balancing act of that where you could sort of say, okay, well, our safety was compromised on the scene because the patient was aggressive and wouldn't let us manage that aggression. As a result of that, we felt unsafe to transport the patient. And we elected to hand over to police or whatever the case may be, um, uh, or get a security escort or all of these kinds of things. So I think that those kind of, um, uh, those operational challenges that you would get as a clinician um, there are ways to overcome it, but I think that it's nice to have that explicitly outlined for you that if this is what you deal with, these are some of the factors to consider. Um, you know, so that's, that's one of the approaches that I would take to something like that, especially with combative patients that have no, let's call it primary disease, they're just intoxicated or under the influence of something else or some substance. Um, and they're becoming aggressive because of that. I think that that is a way for it. But I think it's also difficult sometimes to judge between whether it is just under the influence of a specific substance or this person actually has like a head injury or something like that going with it. So, Yeah, I think it's, it's difficult. We've, um, as, as critical care paramedics, part of our scope practice is sedation. And so mm -hmm. there's, you know again it's difficult because i think the patients with an acute behavioral disturbance that are ideal candidates for sedation and, and medical management they're kind of obvious patients yes. and you yeah. know once you've seen a few and often people only see a few you, you kind of like you know those patients you're going to sedate i think like you say this kind of gray area of well they've they've got a history of mental health but at the moment they've just taken they've just drunk a lot of alcohol and you know mm. it's, it's really hard are they cerebrally agitated or are they just angry yeah. and pissed yeah. off at us and it's, it's tough well, I'll, I'll take the opportunity to um recommend to listeners and i don't know if you've if you've seen it or not there's a blog um that i've used a lot in my pot in in my in my practice it's called the mental health cop um i haven't have actually seen that. no it's, it's really mm -hmm. interesting so so the guy is a police officer 
Um, yeah. And I think he was in a management position and subsequently gone back to frontline police work. Um, okay. But he, he received an OBE for essentially his work in, in mental health um, yeah. uh, in policing. And and so there's a lot of stuff around um, practical application of the Mental Capacity Act and the Mental Health Act and stuff in the UK. Um, but within that also, he's got a series on paramedic. Uh, in fact, it's called the Paramedic Series. Um, okay. There's a series of kind of blog posts about, again, how to work well with the police and how to address these kind of issues. Um, so, yeah, certainly something I'd recommend. I'm yeah, sure it's very UK specific legally, but, um, but yeah, addresses those kind of grey areas. Yeah, that's actually really helpful. I'll definitely have a look at that because it is something that we deal with quite a lot within our setting. Um, uh, because it is very uh, legally and security conscious, mm. the airport, you know, we do get those kind of things. Um, and sometimes you get, um, you know, travelers that will come off of the aircraft and they're completely intoxicated or whatever the case may be. Or even more specifically, sometimes you get combative patients just generally who have had a really tough day because they've been flying for five hours, they're tired, they haven't eaten, they haven't slept, they're agitated because the service was very poor, then they become aggressive with security or whatever and they immediately call us for assistance because they're deemed psychotic or whatever. Going into that and then trying to assist it's something that we do quite commonly. So I'll definitely have this, um, check this out and see how we can sort of translate that into practice. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.